Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to another edition of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. And I also work with technical professionals so they can present more effectively, especially in front of non-technical audiences. You can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that is teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Dr. Todd Pascal. He's an assistant professor in nanoengineering. His research involves studying theoretical and computational methods to elucidate the structure and dynamics of electrochemical systems. I have no clue what that means. So I certainly will ask him about that when we start talking. And before that, he was a project scientist and before that, a, a postdoc and even before that, a PhD student. And he's lived all over the world pursuing his work. So I'm really curious to find out about how he came to nanoengineering. And in addition to how he goes about presenting such technical information, welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Dr. Pascal. Thank you, Neil. Thank you for the invitation. Um, hello to all of uh, your listeners and happy new year. I think I, I think I might be the first one for the year. Oh, well, I mean, you are the first one that I'm interviewing for this year, but because, <laughs> well, because I, I might have a bit of a backlog, it may come out in a, in a few uh, weeks, <laughs> but, okay. but Hey, happy new year to you in, in, in any way, because that, that, that is the time of the year right now. So from the bit of, back, of of research that I did I've done on you, Dr. Pascal, I saw you yep. got your background in chemistry. What was the yep. interest in, in pursuing chemistry? Um, chemistry was always a natural fit for me. Um, I sort of, from my early days, um, was really interested in science. I was good at it. I was good at math. And um, I sort of, you know, chemistry is a study of, of change. And, um, and basically it's, it appealed to me because, you know, I, I would look around and things would be um, changing and, and my life in particular was, was always in, in almost seemingly in a constant um, state of change. And I was really interested in trying to understand, um, you know, why things happened. Um, and, and then in my later life, sort of trying to um, understand how we may start um, manipulating things to happen uh, or to change in, in specific ways. Um, so, um, and then, you know, chemistry, you know, as a high school student or uh, even before that, chemistry is always, it's fun. You know, you get to go in the lab and mix things together. You know, you, um, you know, I had a couple accidents when I was in, in <laughs> high school, kind of, you know, mixing together different compounds and, and having things start frauding up and, and exploding. And I'm sorry, Mrs. Steele, not catch fire. Um, and, you know, so... So it was fun. It was it was always something that you could do that was fun. Physics was fun too. Um, math was fun, but it was always um, much more, um, uh, much less hands-on than chemistry was. And so, so for chemistry, I got to uh, do something that was hands-on and also something that was um, also quite fun. Interesting. Well, you didn't stop just at, at a bachelor a bachelor level. You went all the way to the PhD. So, what was the motivation to get your PhD? Um, I, I had really good mentors. I had um, people who uh, told me uh, that they thought that I could um, I could do that, um, and um, you know I, I did my. Uh, I, I would say one of the defining um, things for me was I did a 
summer research in, um, opportunity at Caltech where I ended up going for my, uh, my PhD as an undergrad. And I met uh, who would, uh, the person who would become my PhD advisor, Bill Goddard, during my summer um, research. And, you know, he he's an extraordinary man and, and sort of has this, um, you know, insatiable appetite for knowledge and, and understanding um, materials and understanding engineering systems. And, you know, he, working with him that summer really sort of um, uh, crystallized within my head, this idea that had kind of been bouncing around for a little bit, um, but that I, I wanted to, to go on and, and work in something that was new and interesting, um, at least interesting to me, um, and something that was really hard. <laughs> and uh, and that that was that was and that was cool to me. And and then you know during the PhD, I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, you're really privileged here because you know, people are paying you essentially to think about things. And and that was that was cool. So um, so all all along the way, at, at every you know, it was not so much a, a plan per se, but as as things went along, I started realizing that ah, that there might be a possibility here, and there might be an opportunity. Was it always your plan to stay in academia, or did you ever entertain leaving? Oh, I entertained leaving. I sort of um, uh, and my trajectory is, is a little sort of non-standard in that um, after my PhD, I um, had an opportunity to go overseas, and so I went to Korea um, for um, for about a year and a half. Um, and there, I, I really just wanted to explore another another country, of course, uh, at, a, at a high level of doing research, but also I, I, um, you know, see what else was out there. Um, and um, and so we did some really interesting work at, uh, in Korea. Um, and then I came back to the States and, and I actually went to the National Lab um, at Berkeley, so uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And there um, I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, the labs are actually really, really fantastic places to do, to do research. And, um, and you know, extremely smart people, you know, top of the line equipment. And so I, I entertained, you know, staying at the lab uh, because it was, it was really neat. Um, and Berkeley Lab is special in that it's so close to UC Berkeley and you get students that are coming up all of the time. And, and in some sense, um, that actually um, motivated me to, to go back to academia. Sort of the idea that I could work with students. Um, you could do that at the lab. There were a, a couple barriers, not not many, um, but even just working with students, I was like, actually, you know what I really, really want to do is um, have my own research group um, with students um, that I'm, I'm able to work on interesting things with. Um, and so, so yeah, an opportunity came came up to come down to San Diego, and and uh, we jumped on it. From the people that I know who are tenure track professors, once they get their PhDs, they often do postdocs. And you, yeah. did, and you, as I mentioned in the intro, you did a postdoc. You were also a project scientist. Yeah. Is it possible to get a PhD and go straight to being a tenure track professor? Yeah, in in certain fields, uh, in engineering fields in particular, uh, that that happens. Um, in the sort of natural sciences, or you know, the sort of the traditional physical sciences, physics, chemistry. Um, uh, math and so forth. I would say uh, it's uh, it's possible, but uh, if you want to do go at a research institution, uh, what a, what is called the R one school, it's a it's a institution that primarily focuses on research. Um, in in the sciences, it's much more likely than not that you you'll do a postdoc. Uh, but in the engineering fields. 
um, it is actually quite common to go straight from PhD into a tenure track uh, position without a postdoc. Why do you think that is? That's a good question. Um, <laughs> it's a very good question. Um, That's I think what I do here, Dr. Pascal. I ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, so I, I don't know, actually. Uh, it's, um, I don't know the answer. I, I suspect that in the sciences, um, typically when you're doing a research project, at least for your PhD, that it's, it's very focused um, on this sort of solving this one, one thing. Um, and the idea for that usually, at least, I, so I'll just talk about my experience. Uh, the idea for that um, project, usually something you either get from your advisor or you collaboratively kind of come up with together. Um, and sort of the, the point of a postdoc in that sense would be for you to start exploring your own ideas and you, so because you, you really don't get that much chance to do that in the sciences um, as a PhD student. Um, I, but in the engineering fields, you know, you're sort of working towards solving a problem and, um, and then that sort of skill set becomes much more easily tra um, translatable to um, kind of starting up with your own research group because then you know you sort of have this experience of solving problems all the time, and so in your own research, then you can say, well, I'll just solve this new problem. So then this I, this idea that you actually need to sort of take one, two, three years to develop your own ideas is 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 not as um, is not as strong. But it's a good question. I actually hadn't. Ever thought of it? It's just been traditionally that's that's how things have have worked. Okay, it's one of those. That's the way things have always been. So we're going <laughs> to keep it going this way, man. I don't. I, I kudos to people like you, Doctor Pascal, who are willing to do it. I mean, for the people who I've interviewed that have those degrees in in the physical and natural sciences, so not engineering. It yeah. seems like it's quite common for the PhD to, to take quite some time. Like I'm seeing like six, seven, eight years in the PhD program. And then after that, now I got to do a postdoc too? Like, where am I allowed to make money? I ain't trying uh, to be it, poor like a priest forever. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good, um, it's a good question. I mean, I think uh, in, in biology, for instance, the, uh, the PhD program tends to take long um, only because nature is, is, and biology is not very cooperative. So you may be working on with fruit flies, for instance. Um, and you know may have discovered this new pathway that sort of is going to extend the life of the fruit fly, let's say. Um, but repeating those experiments becomes really, really difficult because you know biology is just—it's you know—it's subtle biology. Africa life really, really exists in this very, very narrow band. And if you're going to try to change something about that, then you know getting that system to behave properly becomes really, 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 really challenging. So repeating biological experiments becomes. Um, a challenge. So, so the typical biology PhD takes um, takes a while. Um, in I would say chemical engineering um, and chemistry, you know, yeah, maybe maybe five six years. Um, you know, physics, uh, depending on what kinds of physics. So there is there are variations in within the different disciplines. But uh, yeah, it is not uncommon to have a five six year PhD and then um, a couple more years uh, for your your postdoc. Um, and so to your question about, you know, when do you make money? I, I think, you know, most, most professors, at least people who go into tenure track would, would readily admit that um, if they wanted to make money, then this is not the thing they would do. It's a vocation in the sense that it's a calling, you know, you sort of, you know, there, there, there are ways to make 
four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times as much as you make as a professor doing something else. And so this is not why you do it. I understand. I also mentioned in the intro that you're in the nanoengineering department, and I mentioned a bunch of words about what your actual research entails. So maybe you could give a bit more I guess, in, insight as to what nanoengineering is and what exactly you do with your research. Yeah. Um, so, so as you, as you mentioned, I was you know I was trained as a, as a chemist, and um, my my degree actually uh, my PhD thesis ended up being. Um, looking at uh, disorder, um, so trying to understand disorder, if you will, it seems like a bit of an oxymoron, but um, if you have a system that is uh, chaotic or not necessarily well behaved, um, then trying to understand how you can uh, predict how that system would evolve um, effectively was was um, was my PhD thesis. So it was very abstract. <laughs> I, I say that all to say that it was in this sort of you know, niche, abstract feel. You know, I found it super interesting. My advisor was super interested in it. But um, as I, as I, after my my PhD, um, and I think this is maybe coming back to your question about the postdoc, I started thinking about, you know, I, I wanted to get into something a little bit more applied, um, something um, a little bit more um, that I can kind of do hands-on things as opposed to just, you know, write equations all day. And so then I started thinking, okay, well, maybe material science would be good for me, that it, it's a good blend of, um, you know, kind of fundamental kind of physics and chemistry and things that I know how to do. Um, but it's also starting to get into real systems, and which is where I wanted to start going into. And, um, and so, so then that my postdoc at the lab then was in material science. And, and so when I was looking for faculty position, I was started to thinking, actually, I, I, I really enjoy kind of living in this in-between world of, you know, fundamental questions, you know, you know, writing equations and running simulations, but at the same time working with real systems. And so that was the motivation. And so the, the nanoengineering department um, at, at UCSD um, is actually set up exactly to do that, to pursue research into materials and material science, um, but at a, a very fundamental level to really uh, sort of understand how these systems work from base principles as, as so-called ab initio from um, the fundamental principles, uh, fundamental physics, as it were. So, so that is the department. We have a ton of people who are involved at all levels in, in kind of material science and materials engineering, um, looking at it at a fundamental level. At this very nature, nanoengineering means that we're working at systems that are very, very small, um, you know, nanoscale, so about a, a thousandth the size of, of a human hair. And um, and so you know, trying to do engineering at that scale, and it turns out that doing engineering at that scale is very very interesting, um, which is what I would use. Um, everyone else would say it's extremely difficult and extremely complicated um, because you have all of these. You know, now you start having these these electrons, and you know, they're they're not really well behaved. At least we don't really understand them all that well. Um, and so you're trying to manipulate sort of electrons and, and atoms and molecules to sort of um, make um, engineering structures. And so that's really, really cool. Um, so, so what it is that we do. So we lie at, at much more of the kind of fundamental end of, of things. Um, I think you've interviewed uh, Darren Lapomi, and he sort of is, is much um, more sort of the, you're working with polymers that you can generate um, to make nanoscale systems. Uh, so we we try to understand basically um, say um, one of Darren comes up with this new polymer that could 
um, you know, conduct electricity and bend and twist and do all of these things. We try to understand, okay, what about the structure of this polymer leads to the sort of um, um, properties that, that, that he's measuring? So, so fundamentally, we try to understand you know, why nanoscale systems behave the way they do and, and approach that applying um, kind of fundamental principles of physics and chemistry. You know, you say that the work that you do, you find it interesting. Others might find it, you know, or might find it deeply challenging. Yeah. And then people from completely outside the field might just be like, I have no clue what these people are talking about. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you have so you have all this technical information that you want to convey to people. And yeah. and especially if they're non-technical people, it might be difficult to do. At least when I when, and when I first started this whole podcast, it was based on me having to give these technical presentations in front of non-technical people working as right. an engineer and not being yeah. all that great at it. When did you realize that getting better at, at conveying technical information to non-technical people could be of benefit to you? All from, from, from the beginning, I would say. I mean, I think, um, you know, so I, I, um, I was always, uh, like I said, always interested in math, always interested in, in chemistry and, and, and science. And um, growing up, um, there were very few people around me who actually did much more than a high school level, um, uh, got much more than a high school level education. My dad I, uh, is an engineer, a computer science engineer, but he's the only one in my family who ever went to college um, and got his um, degree in computer science. Um, so everyone else that I was surrounded around, um, incredibly, incredibly smart people, but um, just hadn't gone to formal, gone through formal education. And they would always ask me, what is it exactly that you do? <laughs> Um, and even, you know, even when I was in high school and I was studying chemistry and, and, and studying physics, um, you know, no one else around me really um, um, had done those subjects. And so I was always having to explain, you know, what it is that I was learning um, to them. And then later, um, once I started on um, kind of my uh, career, um, explaining to them what it is that, that, that we're doing research wise. Um, so, you know, and... So, so, so I always knew that you know science communication was was important. Um, that became much more crystallized when I was in grad school, and you know I realized, as I said before, people are paying you to think about stuff. Well, the people who are paying you is the is the taxpayer, and and so what the uh, what my former uh, PhD advisor uh, really really impressed upon me is like we have a scientist, we have a uh, an obligation to you know, tell the people what it is that they're uh, investing in, um, showing them why they should um, continue to pay taxes and support science. Um, and so, so we, you know, so he, him and I, we ended up, you know, having all of these, um, uh, doing all of these, uh, you know, outreach activities um, to the local Pasadena community trying to engage people uh, more. It was very important to him and, and he impressed upon me that 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 was um, our obligation as scientists, and, and it's something that I've carried with me um, through um, throughout. And about and and I would say, um, you know, since I've been at UCSD, you know, we, we've sort of built upon that even more, and we have a materials research center that that we started a couple of years ago down here. And a key component of this materials research center is outreach and um, science education, and so you know, teaching our um, 
uh, our cohorts of students how to communicate um, science. And, and there we work with folks at the Fleet Science Center. It's a science center here in San Diego um, on giving professional talks and, um, you know, sort of to, to audiences that are non-technical. And all of the students get trained um, in that um, as, a, as a part of this, this center. Um, and also, you know, we have um, and, um, you know, various symposia that we, we set up just so that students can can talk to high schoolers and middle schoolers and, and you know the lay public about what it is that they're doing. So, so yeah, to answer your question directly, you know, when did I know it was important? I, I knew it was important from the beginning, and um, everything that I have seen since has sort of just reinforced um, those ideas. Is giving presentations or public speaking something you've always been good at? And if not, what did you do to get better at it? Um, well, I, I don't know if I'm, I'm good, but um, I've I've worked at it, um, and I, I think I've gotten better at it. Um, you know, it's for me. I, I was. I don't know if I ever necessarily had a problem speaking in public. I think, um, yeah, actually, I'm pretty sure I didn't. I, I think my grandmother would uh, would agree with that. Um, uh, just kind of impromptu speaking about things, <laughs> whatever interests me or whatever was in my head at the time. Um, but I enjoy it. I, I actually, it's it's the part of the job that I that I I really one of the part of the jobs that I really enjoy is is kind of engaging with people and, and getting them excited. Um, um, and whether that is students and kind of seeing that light bulb moment where you know something clicks in their head. Um, or it's you know sort of you know talking to the lay public and and you know just letting them know what it is that we do and just seeing their oh that is really cool or you know seeing them make a connection as to, oh this might actually help um, in 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 X Y or Z and seeing them make that connection and so so I, I really I really enjoy that I I, I like um, the engagement and um, it also I I find that. I learn so much by, you know, every single time I talk to somebody who's, who's different, who has a different perspective, who asks, you know, a question that I hadn't thought about, um, like today, um, and, you know, it really gets me to think um, about that stuff. So, yeah, it's 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 fun um, to, to engage with people and, and to talk about what it is that we do, because I'm excited about it, and, and I like to um, see if, you know, always take the temperature to re recognize whether I'm just this crazy man or whether or not other people can get excited about it as well. Do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Ah, um, presentations, um, I'm not nearly that organized. I think, um, you know, I, I, I usually start though um, with every, like every, uh, every slide that I have, I, I always have um, a question that uh, I want kind of the audience, if they haven't asked, to ask themselves. Um, and then at the end, um, I would ha have a statement answering that question. So, so that is my general process. You know, I, I, um, I believe that you know, slides should be minimal as possible, or at least, um, and, but convey the actual information um, quite succinctly um, and clearly. Um, and so that's how I go about putting together my presentations. And, and in general, for talks, I, I try to um, have one or two central ideas that I'm, that I'm um, communicating, um, trying to communicate, and then um, sort of build around that. And so, um, you know, um, I, I'm generally of the, uh, of the, the 
opinion that uh, a presentation or a talk um, should tell a story and should have a central thesis. Um, um, and so I, I like to, to talk about things, at least present things uh, in that way, sort of just telling telling us stories, hopefully just one story. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of stories too. And that wasn't something that I initially thought of, especially when giving technical presentations, but especially when you're talking to non-technical people, it can be a great way to just keep their keep their attention and help them keep them engaged, especially if it's something they know absolutely nothing about. And I, I find well, myself, I, oh, go ahead. Well, no, sorry. I was going to say that, you know, it, you know, we as a species, we're natural storytellers. Like this is the beginning of, of everything for us was, you know, looking up in the sky and seeing a phenomenon and then coming up with a story to, to communicate um, to other people, um, uh, you know, what it is that we saw. And so, so people are just naturally, they, they can connect with stories um, and, and presented that way, I think, um, sort of allows them into, into that space, but at the same time, sort of, um, you know, brings you into a, 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 that emotional state where you can connect with them um, sort of directly through this um, very, very traditional kind of old school way of, of, of doing things, which is telling stories. Yeah, no question. Do you ever get nervous before giving presentations? And if so, how do you deal with your nerves? Um, uh, not nervous, I would say, I, usually excited. Um, you know, I, I would, I would be excited. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, insofar as there's any nerves, it would be, I hope that the people get what it is that I'm trying to communicate um, to them, basically, or, um, you know, I hope that at least my, my method of delivery um, is consistent with the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, so, so yeah, so I'm usually excited. I mean, but, and, and then what I've realized is, you know, usually sort of insofar as there is any anxiety, it's, it's right at the beginning where you don't know how this is going to go, but then, you know, you just, you just start talk, talking. And again, you know, if, if you're telling a story, you just start the story and, and then the first kind of engagement with the audience that I get, then then it's you know it just kind of evolves from there, and it um, it uh, the story tells itself, um, which is what I found. I mean, initially there's always some kind of apprehension, if you will, but then once once you get going, I think it's it's it just flows and it figures itself out. For those of for those people who are listening or watching this conversation, what would the number one tip you'd have for them if they want to become more effective in public speaking? Um, well, I mean, I, so, so for me anyway, it, it's, um, the first thing is, you know, at least in, in your, in my mind, I, I map out the story that I'm going to tell. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's all obviously useful to, um, if you're going to give to a different kind of audience to, you know, run it by, um, other people who can give you tips and, and all of that. But I think the first, the first bit is just to know what you're going to talk about, um, there, there are some people that are extremely good at just extempo and just sort of go and off the cuff and, and can weave a, um, a beautiful story off the cuff. I am not one of those people. I, I need to sort of, in my mind anyway, have a, a mental board um, and a structure um, that I can that I can follow, um, at least in my head. Um, and, I, and I found that, that 
that sort of just that kind of preparation um, um, reduces significantly any any kind of anxiety that you would have. Um, and um, so so that's number one. Number two, I think, is um, at least for me, I. I talk to when I talk to my students, it's always in this very, very technical way that, that we talk about specifics of their project. And when I first started giving talks, there was always this. Um, uh, I, I always fell into this, this sort of trap of talking to the audience as if they were my students. So sort of you know, just diving into the sort of the super gritty, nitty gritty technical detail. And, and it took me a couple of times to realize, you know, you really just kind of step back, you know, for a lot of people, this is the first time they're hearing about this. Um, so, you know, presenting it in a way that sort of invites them in um, um, and, and makes that kind of uh, emotional and mental connection first before sort of delving into some um, hardcore um, specifics is, um, was, was quite useful and so that you don't lose, lose people. And then the third one is, you know, just read the room as you're going. So I like to have checkpoints, at least with myself. Now, every five minutes, I just sort of look up, you know, just stop saying anything and just look up for a couple of seconds, just see what where people are. I mean, are they tuning out or is eyes started glossing over? Or are they super interested? Are they writing? And then just adjust my um, delivery based on, um, and how it is that 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 people are responding, right? So if, if people are super engaged, um, then you know, all right, fine, you can kind of just pick up the pace and and um, and go. But if if they're starting to have that glossy look, like, oh, then maybe I will go back and say, actually, you know, I, I really just want to go back to this this point because this is a major point, and make sure that they get it, um, and then just just take the temperature as as I go, um, and and adjust as as necessary. You know, so I, I found those to be be, be useful um, for, for me. Well, thank you for offering three, even though I only asked for one. <laughs> 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 but I, I firmly take your point, Dr. Pascal, about, about having a structure when you're giving a presentation. I have a friend, and he makes fun of me for the fact that I practice my presentations to make sure that I'm putting the information in the best way possible. Because yeah. you mentioned the people that are really great at, at speaking extemporaneously. I firmly believe that they aren't as good as they think they are. Because <laughs> they actually, well, if they actually gave some thought as to how should They'd I present this better. information? Like what should, what should come first? What should come second? What should come third? If they thought about that kind of thing, if they thought about that kind of thing, especially when you're talking to an audience that knows very little about what you're talking about, you're making it much more likely that they'll actually be able to follow what you're saying as opposed to it just coming out the way that it comes out. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. it's one thing to be able to speak without any filler words, no ums, no you knows, you sows. Oh, he speaks really well. But at the end of the presentation, if, if someone asks you, what did he talk about? Oh, <laughs> but he speaks good though. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what I'm about. Well, this has been great speaking with you, Dr. Pascal. Thank you for being a guest. How can people get in touch with you? Um, well, they can, um, you know, drop me uh, an email, um, uh, tpascal at ucsd.edu. Um, or um, our research group is um, the, called the Atlas Materials Research Lab at, here at UCSD. Web address is cmp, charlie, martha, uh, peer, .ucsd .edu. Um And yeah, I, you know, I am generally interested in um, just, just chatting with folks about, you know, 
what it is that we do, um, and also, but you know, just in all what they think it is that that we do. I actually found those conversations to be much more interesting, uh, where people sort of tell me at least what they think that it is what we do. Um, so um, it's been it's thank you for this. Uh, thank you for reaching out and um, and for having this conversation. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another edition of Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson, founder of Teach the Geek, and you can learn more about it at teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care and stay safe. Thanks, Dr. Pascal. Thanks, Neil. Well, everyone, that marks another episode in the can. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like these episodes and want to support Teach the Geek, please subscribe, share, and like on any of your favorite podcast platforms or on all of them also if you prefer to watch the episodes head on over to the youtube channel at youtube.teachthegeek.com until next time